Uvistra Naidu, a pediatrician from South Africa, is the inspiration for this podcast. Three years getting through extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis, and now he's tackling long-haul COVID. This is his story. So thanks for joining, Uvi. Appreciate your coming on board. Pleasure to be here. So about five and a half years ago, maybe a little more, someone handed an essay to me. I kind of, in my day job, my work is to get opinion pieces and op-eds and personal essays, uh, find them a home in major media outlets. And someone gave me something you wrote and said, uh, what do you think of this? Does it have any uh, possibilities? And it was great. Um, it was a little raw, so I made a couple edits, gave it back to my colleague, who gave it back to the client, who gave it to you, who shot down the edits, and that was communicated to the client, that was communicated to my colleague, and that was communicated to me. So I tried it again a different way and kind of tried to explain it with comments, and that was communicated to my colleague, to the client, to you, and you shot it down, and then back and forth. And so then we got on the phone and so it's this international conference call because uh, there was no Zoom five and a half years ago. It was a great conversation. And I recall saying uh, to my wife at the time, I was like, so I spoke to this guy. I still don't know if he's going to actually accept my edits, but he probably is the most enlightened person I've ever spoken to. And that's you. Ah. <laughs> Well, likewise, I think it was just good energy. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, so I actually had a, so I'm a medical doctor, pediatrician now, but when I was a Jew, I still regard myself as a kid in medicine, but I had this 78 year old professor, his name was Professor Dennis Butterton in medical school. And when I was an intern under him, but he often told me problems are often not solved, solved on email. It's actually when you need something fixed, go and shake the person's hand and fix it. So I think when you and I chatted that time, it was hearing two voices, two opinions, and realized how you could make a problem, like, because, like a, get a solution. Well, we've kept in touch since, and yet yeah. we still haven't met in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. COVID's a deterrent right now, but it has yeah. to happen one day soon. But the the impetus for for your your essay the um, that time ago was an exceptionally long uh, encounter with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And I wonder if you could start the conversation by telling a little bit about that experience. Sure. Um, so you and I started chatting seven years since the day I was diagnosed. And that was the 14th of February, 2008. Um, just finished medical school very wide-eyed and bushy-tailed about what medicine was, talking to patients, patient care. I came from a family of doctors. My father was the quintessential family physician who put everything next to the bedside and believed in touching the patient's hand. Everything kind of comes right. 50% of problems with health that comes through by actually showing a patient that you care. And I was training for two marathons that year and I think six weeks into the year, in 2008, uh, I developed, I was getting ongoing chest pain and I lost about 30 pounds uh, in the space of those six weeks. Uh, so I dropped from 
a good weight of like 125, 130 pounds down to 90 pounds in six weeks. So I had a collection of pus in my lungs and were full of fluid while I was still training for marathons to some patients. Got diagnosed, um, they did some biopsies of my lung, uh, very arrogant doctors, egos treating the patients. Um, and it came up to the point where my father criticized the managing physician who was putting a chest tube into my lungs to remove pus, but they couldn't get it in and it took two and a half hours uh, to get the tube in. So my father being a really good clinician, but you know, overlapping with being a loving father, uh, stormed into the room and just said, look, if you don't know what you're doing, I'm a professor, can I just call the head of chest surgery, cardiothoracics? And this physician at that stage basically just said, you know what, you're just a, uh, a GP specialist and I'm a super specialist, please get out of my procedure room you're behaving like a neutral father. And my dad left, called the head of cardiothoracic surgery, who was a good friend of his, they came in. And they had done my chest tube within five minutes, actually. And by that time, the damage had been done. They So basically, between your ribs, you've got uh, some nerves and some blood vessels. And these previous doctors had just traumatized the area. So I began bleeding out throughout the night. I uh, nearly lost my life. Parents were praying at my bedside. I weirdly had an out-of-body experience where <clears throat> I could see people praying around my bed. Um, yeah, and I think it was the first time in my life I actually prayed out to whatever the heavens or the universe was. And I, I just said, look, if I have to go, just let everybody I love be at peace. And, but if I have to stay, uh, let my life mean something. Um, the next day I woke up in South Africa. We're very privileged. We have, it's very Christian and we were colonized. And, we had a part in South Africa, but the nurses uh, in any hospital you walk into South Africa, change over shifts, sing gospel songs. So that is what patients wake up to at the start of every morning uh, or at the end of the evening before their dinner. And I must say, for the first time in my life as a young medic, uh, I got to feel what my patients felt. And as an arrogant, ambitious young kid, it was very humbling. Um, the medical doctor that was managing me was a professor and a good friend of my father. And my dad had read up throughout the night and said that he thought I had multi-drug resistant TB or drug severe drug resistant TB at that stage called XDR, which was the killer that just arrived on the planet. And South Africa was the first place to document it a few months prior. Um, the guy looked at my father and just said, look, I've been managing TB patients for 35 years of my career. You're, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, it's going to be six months of treatment. He's going to be up in his feet and running again. And as fate would have it, uh, six weeks later, my cultures that came through proved that my dad was right. And I started therapy. Um, that actually, it was not the TV that was killing me. It was more the drugs and the archaic drugs used. So I had... Um, 23 drugs a day with some IV drugs, which was through a chemo catheter. Um, and I developed a condition called Steven Johnson syndrome at first, which is basically a severe drug reaction to TB drugs. And my skin started melting and bleeding up. And I was a sports guy. So I played pro junior tennis in my junior days. And because of injury, I actually became a marathon runner. So, you know, aesthetics and socially putting in, I was quite the life of the party before, and this was, was quite a mental knock. 
Uh, we fixed that. My liver went into, got injured because of the TB drugs and um, we fixed that. Thereafter, we thought I had uh, lesions in the valves of my heart and uh, we had to get over that hurdle and then I developed severe depression and anxiety. Uh, but yeah, I actually thought of killing myself. I thought of hanging myself uh, uh, and I found my father. I had insight to realize. I phoned my dad and I said, you know, dad, I wanted to brush my teeth and I had a panic attack and it made me depressed that I couldn't brush my teeth because I didn't have the energy. Uh, so I think I need to see a psychiatrist. Um, so my father phoned a friend, was very well connected, went to see the psychiatrist and they said, yeah, you're depressed, you have anxiety symptoms, you need to start an antidepressant. I was a very sweet lady and I told her, wait, hold up, what if I take this antidepressant tomorrow? What are the interactions with the 23 other TB tablets I'm taking, plus the IVs that are going into my heart? What is the interaction? Do you know? And she said, you know what? I don't. So I said, thank you, lady. I'm not taking the drugs. I'll find a way. So that's Sunday. My dad and I sitting in front of the television. He's reading the newspaper. He's classic clothes, cross-legged. Um, by the way, my dad is late. We can talk about that later. I passed away January this year. So I look fondly at my TV growth um, and recovery. Due to, I owe it a lot to my dad. Um, so we watched a TV commercial together. It was the Karate Kid being advertised in the show on the weekend. So I told my dad, Dad, I want to do bonsai. I think that's what I want to do. That's going to kill this depression. So I couldn't walk much because I had severe joint stiffness from the TV drugs. So I walked, it took me like 30 minutes to pee. And so my dad carried me, put me in the car, bought a bonsai actually. And we actually got super ripped off because it was in a super rich area uh, that, you know, like they just like treat millionaires to teaching them how to be like old Zen and Japanese about life. I always picked on this bonsai to say I got ripped off, but I mean, it's 2021. And my dad and I bought this bonsai in 2008. And it is still alive and super strong. It's just a testament to the story of my dad in that day. So on and on, the TV treatment went on and off. And I asked my physician, uh, hey, come on, am I going to run again? Am I going to play tennis? When can I do that? So because I was not gaining weight, I stayed 90 pounds. Uh, the physician got angry at himself, actually, but he took it out of me. And I was a 23-year-old kid. So he just told me, you have a 20% chance of living five years. Why would you want to put your family through this? If you survive, you should pick a, a desk job. Become a researcher. But your all hopes of playing sport are gone. And I looked at him, and I actually just said, well, fuck you. <laughs> I'm 23 years old. Like, is this what you actually say to it? Is this how you bring hope in something that doesn't have hope? So, like, so, it's just such a waste of a life. So, so, here, yeah. so you've been at the TB drugs for how for how long now? Just over a year, probably. Okay. Like, probably like 14 months or so. Yeah, and uh, prior to that, uh, my dad was in a conference in Australia. Yeah. And he checked in daily to see how I was. Okay. And I decided to go on the treadmill and I coughed up blood. So this was the follow-up visit straight after coughing up blood with this physician. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, so you kept... Yeah, and so I experimented. So, so you, but, you, but you kept going, right? 
yeah yeah it was weird like uh, you know like something inside me just kept saying i just wanted to prove these people wrong i actually wasn't about throwing myself in tv it was also like just having this young spunk in me i suppose every time i disagreed with somebody not giving me hope i just wanted to prove them wrong i just wanted to say there's a better way to do this and i think i was tackling the clinicians that were in my opinion bad teachers and when i look at someone like my father when i look at his life retrospectively he was for me the quintessential teacher he always made you feel lighter in front of the room where he was consulting you um compared to when you walked in when you left that room you always felt better is that, there's so many guys is that part of the role of a good doctor though is is helping patients with understanding and and grappling the conditions that they confront i think that's all it is well it's not all it is i mean like they they still gotta cure you of a you know disease that you know you gotta 80 percent chance of of dying you know there's there's still that but but there's a healthy amount that goes with yeah, it. Yeah, I know, but like also... Yeah, I don't know. I, I disagree on some level. Because I come to my job without buying from the patient. Like, I'm a pediatrician, right? It, there's such a mind component to this. And I think people only consult the doctor because they've got a subjective view that they are suffering. And they need someone to empathize with that suffering. And if I don't, as the clinician, the treating doctor learn how to empathize with that individual patient. There is no one-size-fits-all tablets or IV that is going to fix that patient as traditional medicine treats. And I think that was the message that my teachers were trying to get across to me. But those teachers are all too few these days. I, with chronic, especially with illnesses with chronic suffering associated, you know? Um, I think the acute cold or the acute pneumonia, yeah, sure. My medical school teaching and my experience and scientific learning does assist but there's a hidden component of contextualizing suffering and a lot of that is half that and i think that's a modern medicine fails to realize like the old school of feeling the pulse was a connection with your patients and as much as we advance medicine we cannot forget the human component um, that's what started us wanting to survive and live longer um, you can't live longer being depressed, even though I've cured with cancer or you to you. Yeah. So, so to spoil the ending of the story, you survived. <laughs> yeah. Three but, years, one week and one day later. But three, yeah, three years and plus being treated for, for XDR TV. Yeah. And so I didn't respond well, and then I, they had to convert it to a more stringent regime. Yeah. And then you went on, and then you were practicing medicine, and then fast, you know, fast forward a bit, um, you started working, um, sort of talking a bit about your TB experience, um, and that informed how you worked as a practicing doctor. Yeah. 
I found a weakness in TD where there was, so I realized nobody was practicing basic science when I was a patient. My dad and I read uh, research papers every day and we guinea pig my body trying different things that we use on mouse models for TD. So I found a gap that there's brilliant people doing science and brilliant people doing clinical patient care, but none of them actually communicate. Hence diseases don't actually get translated into proper relief of suffering and quicker, quicker healing. So then we have the start of last year and, and, and the COVID pandemic kicks up and then kicks up hard in South Africa where you are. And what, what happens? We were worried. Like everybody, Bill Gates even said, Africa's going to be the hardest hit. It's going to be crazy. We have no resources. We're all going to die. Like that's like how we all shut ourselves going to work every day as doctors. And uh, our first wave uh, hit us properly June, July last year. So I was working a mixture of private practice, doing academic research job that was unpaid and I was just fulfilling the bill. And I was working in government as well. Uh, yeah, so a lot of the old clinicians, old pediatricians were very scared for their health, the 60 plus doctors age group. So they all reached out to me for, could I help them out? And a lot of them trained with my family, like my dad and stuff in the older generations. So they experienced that apartheid segregation of they were brown or black and they trained together in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And um, I was actually just told, please can you help them out? Like, we need these guys to stay because those are the old school contingent of mentors. So I worked like a dog. I probably worked 20 hours a day for about two months. And COVID hit me on the 23rd of July. It hit my lungs, my liver, and my heart. And I had three ICU admissions thereafter. And uh, yeah, but weirdly enough, it was quite severe. But I think the TB actually was a good, I always wondered, I always told people, I, I hate being called a TB survivor. It just really irritates me because life still carries on after that. And there's other things. I was waiting for the next moment. And it almost felt like TV happened for a reason in my life. And it gave me the tools to actually take it one day at a time, but just live at home. COVID, once it hit me, um, it was a time where the whole world kind of spoke with the same suffering, we had the same ear, the same voice, and we were all on the same topic for the first time. And um, I really wanted to get better. And I started slowly recovering and by December 2020, I actually thought, cool, I'm weaning off my oxygen, my heart rate was slowing down. And unfortunately, uh, my father and sister were both physicians were working like crazy on the East Coast of South Africa. And we had the South African variant of COVID, which was quite severe. And my father was seeing 40 patients a day. And unfortunately, which what happened to many healthcare worker families, uh, that he brought, or my sister brought the bug home to our family, and I got re-diagnosed with COVID for the second time on the 1st of January this year, uh, and 2021. And um, yeah, I lost my father on the 15th of January. Uh, my mother got admitted on the same day my dad father passed. Uh, we had to lie to the mom that my dad passed so we could get her out of ICU. And my sister had seizures due to COVID and we also had to keep us strong. And uh, 
it's been a day by day lesson of surviving, but perhaps living is the right word to rather use. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm in worse health than I was in December last year, but I'm starting to edge around the corner and I'm still somehow hopeful my running shoes will be back on and I'll be running with you, Dan, uh, on some marathon, uh, taking some epic selfies one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about the selfie part. <laughs> I do know about the running part. Yeah. But do you think... Yeah, but, but, Go on. Yeah, but I must also add, my, my friendship with you... From writing an op-ed piece together and um, continuing to just reach out and say hi every few months and nothing's changed uh, from the uh, your cynical view of the world and my life romantic view of the world. We kind of married together quite well uh, with your re-diagnosis uh, cancer last year. Uh, I wouldn't have survived COVID had it not been for you, to be honest. Um, we spoke daily since the day of my diagnosis. You woke up in the mornings, yeah. Yeah, it's true. We we woke up as as I was going through cancer treatment. You were you were battling through COVID, and and so we kept each other going. Totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, this experience genuinely has taught me how small this world is. I mean, we're thousands of miles apart, but. Um, I look forward every day in the ICU to your text saying, how are you doing? This is what I'm doing, and this is my symptoms, and I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on, on those bad days, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was so real, you know? And uh, I think that's the lesson I learned, just being transparent with what's happening real time. And, and we grow from there. What, what is terrible today, when you look back, was not that bad. Um, two months down the line until the next issue that hits you. True. Um, and I love that from you. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, for, for a lot of it, you know, on the one hand I'm wrestling with, you know, cancer recurring is a terrible thing. And, and there's all sorts of baggage and all sorts of worries that come with it. But yet, you know, I always felt I had an easy time because, I mean, I never, I never had to go into the ICU. You know, I was hospitalized for treatment, but that was more for observation than for actual worries and the crazy medicines that that were being pumped into me. You know, I managed to tolerate them all okay, and you know, but on the other hand, they would, you know, it was like, okay, we're going to start you on this. Okay, well, you know, just to be safe, let's give you a little of this. Okay, we're also going to give you a little of that. Oh, and then here's the bone marrow transplant where you're going to get this, that, and the other thing. And all through this experience, you know, you're just struggling. It was good to, yes, to, to just keep each other going. Yeah. Well, Dan, if I may ask, how do you find during COVID having chemo and your bone marrow, uh, all of that, how did the medical system empathize with you and your family during this time in comparison to round one cancer and this time being round two. Did it change? Was it well, so, Was it good? So we, we were at a different 
place. Um, the first place that when I was treated the first time around um, was a different, I mean, it was a different time, obviously. So there's no COVID. So, you know, when the doctor met with me to talk things through, my wife could be by my side. And, and this time around when the doctor met with me, um, it was a different doctor and he was talking through a face mask and my wife couldn't be present because of covid restrictions so she had to hear what he was mumbling um through the face mask into the smartphone speakerphone and it just so, so the answer is very much no um like the the family compassion was not there. The, the, the procedures were not rewritten to accommodate um, the, the pandemic. And, and, you know, months into the pandemic, it was obviously not going away. And even though, you know, I'd point out, like, you know, you're giving this training and yet, you know, our caregivers need to to have this training information and you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for us. You're not even, you know, doing it through Zoom. You're having us, you know, put, you know, our spouses on speakerphone next to your microphone. And, and, and they empathized and they understood the problem, but yet they were completely inflexible. You know, they just couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to break free of, their paradigm yeah you know i think COVID for me my, my opinion is that uh the number one prescription that needed to, to advance any problem uh as a doctor was kindness and empathy um and it, it, i was criticizing healthcare and science for a large part since i had tb until this COVID pandemic hit, where I actually saw the fear and nurses that were in a team but lost three of their colleagues the week before because they died of COVID. And just fear of healthcare workers. I mean, there was this occasional, let's applaud all the healthcare workers from the politicians just for a nice little screen grab moment um, on CNN or whatever. But beyond that, it was appreciation was lacking, but the fear of risking your life every day was there. Um, so we were not really realizing that we just had each other to look after. Like the government wasn't going to do it because, I mean, let's be honest, you guys had quite a unique set of government uh, uh, people <laughs> for the last four years. And let's not go there. That's another survival episode. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but at the same time, I was a patient in ICU, and I got to see people die next to me. That. Um, could not talk to their wives or had to lie to their wives that they were sick uh, and to their kids and their grandkids, you know. So I spent a large part of the last decade, over a decade, um, canvassing for the patients that didn't have a platform. But it wasn't that the healthcare workers, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't that they were not, I mean, they were exceptionally compassionate and they were, you know, they, they understood <laughs> It was more, you know, the routines and systems that had been um, created and, and, and set uh, up and, 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 you know, most of these were clinically tested and how to handle and, and arrange things. And there was such a, 
it was so difficult for them to break free of that to figure out, okay, how do we get a headset underneath the visor so that the spouse can actually hear what the doctor's saying? How do we, you know, can we make sure we do a Zoom training and, and train the, you know, train the trainers so that they know how to do a Zoom training, not just do an in-person conversation? It, 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 it was very hard for the larger hospital system that treated me to figure this out. And, and to my knowledge, they still haven't. And, and yeah, like to be tangential and generalize, like from a philosophical point of view, I grew up uh, 1994 in this very cheap TV that my dad worked his ass off to pay off. And so we had this TV that had the spot in the center where you couldn't see anything. And then everything else was color around it. And that was the day Nelson Mandela got released. And we had our first democratic election. And I must say, I am so privileged to have grown up in a country that saw that. But those guys in that generation that just stood up, you know, and just fought back against the system and lent a voice when the world told you you couldn't. And when I look at something like COVID that happened right now, I see a youth, younger generation, my generation younger than me, that are very complacent and just being followers and not leaders and breaking through. COVID for me, I told you this, were two things on the prescription pad for me as a doctor right now that I really always won't forget. It's kindness and empathy. But the third thing is that there is no rule book. It's adaptability. It's not the person with the PhD anymore that's going to bring the solution to a problem. It's somebody who just adapts real time and reacts appropriately. Uh, and I don't know if I'm wrong, but I tend to be humbled again with future pandemics or problems that are on mass scale like this. Um, but that there lied the anxiety of how to make things work in a rigid hospital system that's been functioning this way for 100 years or for three years or whatever, you know? Um, and we learned a lot, I must say, by adapting. But I think the problem is not... It, it, it's not the unadaptability of the system. It's that the the research that underpins the, the system had to yeah. you had to you had to figure out new systems. You had to and you had to understand how to make those systems work given the circumstances. And. Yeah. The fault more is just this expectation that the virus would just go away and, and, and it hasn't and it still yeah. hasn't. And at the same time, yeah. you know, science is rocketed forward. Like we had, a, you know, we have vaccines and, and they were figured out, you know, and, and they're not perfect as we learn. But, but, you know, for the most part, yeah. we have vaccines within a year, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, totally. And nothing has come this fast ever in the history of our of our existence on the planet. No? Yeah, and, and and so there's there's so much to learn from that, and it's, but it all comes. But the vaccine science was driven by people who said this isn't going away until we find the vaccine. We have yeah. some idea of how it could be done. Let's make it happen. Whereas yeah. in the greater world, people said. Okay, this is here. We're just gonna hold our breath, and it'll eventually go away. And it did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
I, I, I'm talking adaptability um, in terms of, you know, I, I, when I mentioned about TV, the marriage between the advocates, the patients, uh, the science, and the clinician, and what creates a, a linear sort of channel between the two that just unites them all. And with COVID, for me, in South Africa, well, I'm not going to talk about Trump land because I wasn't there, but <laughs> like my American medic friends or science friends attest to a lot of the bullshit you guys went through. But yeah, it, it was a real problem with adapting and getting those sides to marry. And I must say, it was a great lesson in showing how much we could push forward. Like getting those vaccines, these vaccines out, uh, it showed us how the business world, the engineers, like everybody just kind of worked together in synchrony. But it took us some time to realize that that's what we need. Um, we need many, many, many hands and heads to make life work, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, as, as much as I'm suffering with COVID now, the hope's coming back despite feeling pretty shitty on all this. Well, it's only afflicted you for less than a year, and, and TB yeah. had you for three years. So does that give you any hope or perspective? I think the cool thing for me is that when I had TV, very few people could empathize because they had a very minimal experience from it. But I'm living in a world right now where almost every person I meet somehow knows somebody or has possibly had COVID. So my experience is so easily relatable. And so my voice of experience means that there's many other beautiful stories out there um, that I get to hear and grow and learn from as well. And if I could marry that to other problem diseases, like I won't stop uh, talking about TB because 1.4 million people die from it every year, more or less, and they're forgotten voices. And even more so, I South Africa lost 173 doctors of professorship, elder um, age groups that were just vital to being mentors to young people like me, and they're gone. Um, and we're a small country. I mean, we've contributed to science, but um, I mean, I've learned a lot and I, I continue to be hopeful, uh, but uh, with a bit of pain in my heart, knowing that's what had to be sacrificed uh, to move ahead. So I think I'm happier that people understand that I'm with oxygen walking around every day with the school. I'm, I'm from a privileged perspective, but um, the average kid or the average poor family that still lives in informal settlements or a shack in South Africa um, doesn't have this oxygen to walk around like I do in a mall or on the street. Um, and I hope whatever juice I have left in this body, uh, the mind is strong, but the body is, is taking some time to trickle some energies day by day. I'm still hoping I can still be a voice to that. It hasn't deterred me. It's actually just augmented the TV story a bit better, I think. Fair enough. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for sharing and, and the conversation, Irvin. We'll be in touch. Still regular. Sounds great, Dan. Okay. Cool, man. Looking forward to hearing your vision on what you went through as well. Hopefully we can talk more about that together. It gets pulled out guest by guest. <laughs> <laughs> cool man thank you so much as well for inviting me and let's let's yeah. let's let the good times roll with our friendship and yeah. you as best we can thank you for listening to this episode of surviving a series of conversations with people who have gotten through all sorts of trauma and disease 
Some folks, like Uvi and I, can't stop ourselves from sampling calamity after calamity. 